So continuing on, we're now at verse 16. So in his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. As we said before, in verse 20, he's going to clearly show what the seven stars and the seven lampstands are. So we will not get into that now. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is, again, a sign, his right hand, a protection and power. That's what he does and why it emphasizes his right hand. From his mouth, or when he speaks, there proceeds a sharp two-edged sword. Some say one side for pruning and chastening and dealing with his church, his people. He's refining them. He's correcting them. He's disciplining them. And then the other side, to cut off and destroy and judge the wicked. So we see, yes, he uses the sword for both. Remember, those who bear fruit for the vine, he prunes them. Well, he needs a knife to do this, that they'll bear more fruit. But the ones that won't, he cuts the whole branch off and casts them aside. See, that's a clear to those who are not given to demonic spirits. That's a clear showing that you can be cut off from God and from Christ and from grace. And he says, and the Father will do it. We will see here in the book of Revelations that Christ does this now since his glory is restored to him. He has the same ability, the same power to raise up or to destroy. Okay, So we see this two-edged sword is to judge and destroy the wicked, which in the book of Revelation, we're going to see these things happen. He will return bodily as king and judge, and he will have a sword. He will not come as savior and intercessor. Hebrews says he, when he returned, he said he will not come with salvation. He's done that. Okay, he, he came as the sacrifice, the savior, the redeemer. When he comes the second time, he will come as a judge and a king. He will not intercede. There will be no person in the temple before the Lord interceding. It will be forbidden because that is the time of wrath and the time of judgment. God has a limit to grace and mercy with nations, with individuals. And once he proceeds, he does not back up. Even with Israel, he threatened them. And then when he started to bring the judgments, they tried to repent. And he said, after I've rewarded you double for your sins, then I'll take you up again. He meant as a nation. He didn't mean as individuals. Sometimes he wiped out the whole generations of wicked Israelites and those from Israel and Judah. They rebelled against him. But because of his promise to Abraham and to David, he did not make a full end of Israel. He made a temporal end of them during the destruction of the temple. And now they are not in a position of being blessed. That's a false teaching to say that the Jew is saved in a different way. He is not. Only the Jewish Christian. They are not in any special position. 
Actually, Paul makes it plain that God removed the wall and the veil, and there's neither Jew nor Gentile. See, But when he removes the body of Christ, mainly the Gentile Christians, that's who it's going to make up, then he will establish the millennium. He will use parts of the law again, the rituals, and he will establish Israel as chief among the nations. And they will observe various Jewish feasts and festivals. But see, that is not for the body of Christ now, the basic Gentile. So Jews have no special standing with God. And if anything, see, people fail to remember that God has sent the devil through many generations to punish Jews who put down Christianity and tried to put their system above Christianity. Hitler wiped out one half of the Jewish world. The devil did it, but it was by God's permission. He said, I will hunt you and send fishermen after you. See, until they acknowledge the Lord and turn to him, they're under a special punishment. So they're not having any special favor with God. As long as they elevate Judaism without Jesus Christ, they offend Jehovah God. See, they do not make him happy about this. Okay? So all judgments, as we've said, are committed to the Son of Man as he expressed and experienced all human temptations and trials, but he overcame them. So there'll be no excuses for the sinners when they are judged. Okay? It says his face shining in its full strength as the sun. The same glory, as we've said, and splendor that Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. As we said, Jesus had a taste of the full glory that he had been emptied of to give him encouragement, to give him God's promise, though you will suffer and bear the sins of the world, the end result is I'll restore all to you and more. So that was for Jesus' comp and confirmation. Matthew 17, 1 and 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves and was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light, describing what we're talking about here in verse 16. Okay, His face, like the sun, shining in its strength. Up further, his head and hair, as white as wool, his whole being. See, it's part of the Godhead temporarily being restored to him. And they fully do not understand this still. They knew he was a prophet. They knew he was the Messiah. But remember, they still kept trying to keep him from going to the cross. See, they were still thinking from the earthly perspective. As Peter said, spare yourself. And Jesus called him the devil and said, get behind me. You don't understand the things of God. You deal with the human side. It was out of emotions and feelings and sentimentality that Peter did not want Jesus to die. And the devil used that quality. Sentimentality, emotion, feeling, they have their place in humanity. 
We use that in our dealings with family and friends and children. But it is not to supersede the duty to God. And so therefore Jesus rebuked the devil inspiring him. That's why he said, get behind me, Satan. He knew who was motivating him. And it wasn't until the resurrection and Pentecost that the apostles fully understood who Jesus was. They were still, like Philip was saying, well, show us God. Show us the Father. They didn't understand he was with them and had cloaked himself. And Jesus said, every word I spoke, every work I did, it was the Father doing it in me. And you haven't perceived this yet, see? So God not only emptied himself in Christ, he restrained himself, he condescended. He was saying, the most you're going to know of the Father is in me. See, they were looking for outward signs like Moses saw, and it never changed anything with the children of Israel. They still rebelled. So he took on the human nature, and yet he represented God perfectly. Every word he spoke, every work he did, it was the spirit of the Father in him. And therefore he could say, how long have I been with you? You don't know me. But then after the resurrection, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And they understand who he is. And we find in the epistles even, referring to Christ sometimes, Jesus, as God. Sometimes they prayed to the Father. Sometimes they prayed directly to Christ. So they understood that he was part of the Godhead. Yet he retained his humanity and he still retains that as the high priest before the Father for us. In verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. See, we have to remember, because this is what John's getting, this is Jesus the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the one who John writes before he writes Revelation. He said, this was the one, the word of God. This was the one that was with God and is God. He was face to face, his equal. That's what he was saying. And he said he took on, he took on the human nature. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says and we beheld his glory. Some believe he's referring to the transfiguration, that during his earthly ministry, three apostles saw him glorified. They saw something the others did not see. And he said, and we beheld his glory. So they did get a glimpse. How long they retained it, we don't know, because Jesus reproved them for forgetting and for being slow to comprehend. He rebuked them at times for this. See, their humanity got in the way. They had fixed ideas of what the Messiah was supposed to do, and they didn't have no spiritual comprehension. He had to come as the servant and the Savior first. He had to suffer for the sins of the world. But then he would come back a second time as a king and judge. They were looking for him as a king and a judge. And when Jesus clarified he wasn't going to do this, most of the people forsook him. See, 
thousands of them, put him on a donkey and waved palms because they thought he was going to come to the temple, overthrow the Romans, and set up Israel among the nations. And then when he started saying, my kingdom's not of this world, and he began to show them he wasn't going to openly rebel, that he was of another kingdom, well, they got tired of that. And remember, even after the resurrection, the 40 days, when he appears to them and then he ascends, even Peter says, well, when will you restore Israel? See, they still got that patriotic mind. They're looking and they're a little puzzled because they're expecting him. And then he told them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. Why? Because it's going to be more than 2,000 years before this happens and you're not going to be here. So it doesn't concern you is basically what he was saying. And after Pentecost, remember, he said, but when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. You don't hear them asking after Pentecost any more questions about him restoring Israel. They understood that the kingdom of God was within them. It was a spiritual kingdom. And it was not to become physical. And Jesus reigning as king and judge for many, many centuries to come. See, that was the fault of the Jewish rabbis not understanding the suffering servant and not wanting to see him in that position. Therefore, Peter could say, oh, Lord, spare yourself. We don't want you going to the cross. We want you to overthrow the Romans. We want you to destroy the Jewish religious hypocrites and establish your kingdom. And remember the 12 sort of debated and argued among yourself which one would be the greatest. Can you imagine this? Jesus is preparing to go to the cross and they're arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And James and John, they most likely put their mother up to it. And she went and asked Jesus if they could have the left and right hand. <laughs> we laugh at how absurd, how embarrassing, how pathetic. But see, it was because they were so locked into this earthly kingdom. The spirit had not entered them. They were still acting according to the human nature and the principles of the law. The spirit did not indwell them. And therefore, he said, it's better for you when I go away. For if I don't go away, he will not come. And he will guide you into all truth. So Jesus was saying, it's not good that I stay here bodily. I can't live in you. Remember, he said, I am with you, but I shall be in you. So he was saying it was better after Pentecost than the whole ministry of Jesus, other than his sacrifice, because they couldn't comprehend these things. Mary, the mother, she hid things in her heart. She still didn't have a full comprehension of who Jesus was. They were still dealing without the clear clarity. And then the Spirit gave it to them. See, because he indwelled them. He said, I am with you and I shall be in you. See, he was limited to an earthly body and an earthly place. Now, as the Christ, he indwells true Christians as God. So he's one with them. And he can tell them things and enlighten them with spiritual wisdom that he could not give them. And it wasn't for them to know during his earthly ministry because they would have interfered with things he was doing. God did not want them. But after Pentecost, they could look back and all the puzzle pieces came together. And then they could say, oh, now 
we see, okay? So the glory, okay, the glory of the Lord's manifestation was so overwhelming to this man of God. Ezekiel and Daniel had similar reactions when they saw the Lord in visions and when angels appeared to them. This would happen to them. The Son of Man touched him with his right hand again, remember? He protects him. He is the strength and power of the Godhead. And often this happened when angels appeared and people were fearful, the angels would strengthen them. We only have two places that it's clear. Could have happened times that we're not told about. But two times in Jesus' ministry, angels ministered to him. Once, when he finished the trial and temptation by the devil, he was so weak in body, it says the angels came and fed him. See, they provided bread for him. So they strengthened him. And then when he was agonizing in the garden and sweat blood and understood the wrath of God and the punishment that was going to come on him, the angel came and strengthened him. He gave his humanity the ability to proceed on and not give up. And it was the man nature that had to be strengthened or he could not have made it to the cross. But see, his willingness to obey the Father drew out of God the ability to help him do the will of God, even though it was a great sacrifice and a great suffering. So we find do not be afraid was often the word spoken by angelic appearances. And he says, I am before all and after all is what he saith. I am the first and the last. He's given us a clear understanding. He is God. See? Because at other times, this is God and the Father speaks this. So he's showing us he has all power. He has all knowledge. He is part of the Godhead. He is the one who is face to face with God. He is the word of God. As we said, when he returns on a horse, it said on his thigh is written the word of God. Letting us know he is God as king and judge. Okay. He was before all creations. He is the what we call the I am, the existing one. So when the disciples, when he said destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days, they were thinking of the earthly beautiful Herod's temple that was 50 some years old or more. And they argued among themselves, how can you do this. And he was speaking of his body as the temple. And they was talking about Abraham. And he said, you make yourself greater than Abraham. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. So he was making it clear. And they didn't like it. And they sought to stone him because they saw this as blasphemy. They said, you a man making yourself equal to God. They understood what he was saying. And Jesus didn't often clarify that to the wicked. But see, it provoked them because it didn't fit into their theology because they were false prophets and false teachers. And they were uh, wicked before the Lord. And the Lord said, how can you escape the damnation of hell when you lay aside the word of God for your traditions? Well, they're still doing that, aren't they? The majority of Christian and Christian organizations are doing the same thing. 
and they're not going to escape the damnation of hell. He continues on in verse 18, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of the grave. That's what Hades meant. Some translate it hell, but it's not the hell fire that's spoken of by Jesus. It's the grave. Those lie dormant, waiting for the resurrection, most of them, of the damned. Okay? So he's saying, I am eternal life with the Father. The spirit of life proceeds, the scripture says later, from the throne of the Father and the Son. From the Father, from God and the Lamb. That's what it says. I was dead. Okay. He was the Savior, the Redeemer, Jesus, the Son of Man. Okay, the Son of God. Yet behold, I am alive forevermore. Death could not hold him because there was no sin in him. He died for the sins and was judged as a sinner for man's sake. He represented them, but he had no sin in him. And Romans says that he was resurrected by the spirit of holiness. And that was the proof that Apostle Paul says that he was the son of God. See, It could not hold him. Corruption could not take him. Because there was no sin in him. He was made a sin offering for the wicked mankind, for the sins of the world. But he says, now yet I am forevermore. Okay. I have the keys of what he says. I have the keys of death and of the grave. Keys mean power. Power to open something. See, that's what keys always symbolize. So it's given to him. Jesus said all power and authority is given to the Son. All of it's given to him. Everything the Father has. When he was restored to his glory, all things are given to him. As the Son of God, as the Son of Man. Certain position. He therefore will be the judge. All judgments. Because it says he's the Son of Man. Doesn't say he's the Son of God. See, he fulfilled things as the perfect servant. And he's rewarded by God for this. Remember, Peter was given keys to the kingdom. It was not to make him a pope, nor to carry on this demonic system. The key was what? To open. What did he open? Peter first preached the gospel to Jews at Pentecost, and thousands came to the Lord. Then years later, eight, ten years later, he first preached the kingdom to Cornelius and his family of 12 people there, and they were Gentiles. So he opened the door. That's what that meant when Jesus said, Peter, you are right, and I will give you the keys. He didn't make him a pope. As I keep trying to tell people, it appears James had more power in the Jerusalem church, and he wasn't even one of the 12. And yet we find Peter being very careful to report to James and the elders what he did if he did something out of the ordinary. So we do not find any popery. Now you study the Roman church and its system. Supposedly there are at least four popes, three or four after Peter, when John the Apostle was still living. How could that be? They couldn't fulfill to be over John. So they assume that if the Pope is Christ in human flesh, then their Pope would have to have exceeded 
the Apostle John, and he was the last of the fathers of the twelve. Shows you hypocrisy and corruption of their system. It doesn't hold no water, according to Scripture. So he has the power to open, the power to raise the dead, or the power to consign the wicked to death, ultimately the second death. All wicked beings, devils and humans, will be ordered by him into the lake of fire. Okay, The second and permanent death. Not annihilation, but everlasting torment, weeping and gnashing of teeth. A horrible scripture. And people like to do away with it. A lot of professing Christians like to do away with hell. And yet, Jesus said, even in heaven, that the smoke of their torment will ascend before the Lamb and the angels forever. The smoke of their torment. Well, for there to be any smoke of torment, somebody has to be tormented. And they're going to be in the lake of fire. But there's going to be a witness to God's holiness and judgment against sin in the universe. And a sign and symbol will never happen again. God will confine wicked beings in the lake of fire. And that's a small portion of the universe. And the righteous shall be permanently pillars in the temple of heaven or God. They shall not move in and out. They're fixed there as well as the wicked are fixed in hell. Verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. For this reason why I have power and authority over all. See, I am a part, I am the first and the last. I am before all and after all history. It all is locked within me and my power. I have the keys. Whatever the Father has, I have. I share with him. And he said, so write what you've seen. Okay, he's seen a vision. He's going to see many more before the book of Revelation is completed. The prophecy is a vision. It is a prophecy. John does not have liberty to expound on it. He can tell certain events. He can tell his position. But he's not like Paul and Peter and even John his epistle where he can expound and explain and use his godly wisdom to speak forth the word of God. See, that's what authority is. God's apostles and disciples and those led of him are not parrots and they're not robots. They use their spirit. God uses their personalities. We see it in the Old Testament prophets. We see it in the New. They give certain things and other times they give it in their language. And God honors it. He says, go and use my name. And so when they cast out spirits and they healed, they did it in his name. But they spoke it. And they spoke it in their language. The spirit didn't grab their tongue and make them say thanks. They did things. He said, go and use my name. Use my authority. It was what was told to Moses when he was backed up to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army was coming to destroy him, he started to pray. Remember, he was the greatest of intercessors through most of the old covenant. He began to pray, and the Lord said, get up. Basically, why are you praying? 
He said, Todd, you've prayed enough. He said, take your rod and divide the sea. He told Moses, you do it. He didn't say, I'm going to do it, did he? And Moses took the rod and struck the waters and they opened up. And when the Jews, Israelites got all the way through and then the Egyptian army was coming, he took the same rod and commanded the sea to close. But he did it by the command of the Lord. So Christians, when they use Jesus' name, they do this. They don't parrot verbatim what the Lord says. That's a rare event. They're not speaking a thus saith the Lord prophecy from the Lord. They are using wisdom. As Peter did when he judged through the Spirit Ananias and Sapphira. He says, you've not lied to men and you'll drop dead. He's speaking his own mind, but it's the Spirit speaking through him. And he says, you've not lied to a man. They thought they were lying to Peter. But he put it in words that they thought it was Peter. And that was God's intention. And when the wife came in later, he asked her and gave her opportunity to acknowledge her sin. And she lied also. And Peter says, the feet that carried your husband out are going to carry you out. He's speaking that in his own language. his own, And God strikes her dead. See, he uses this apostolic authority to accomplish what he wants. So he's the word of God. He has all knowledge and power to bring about his plans. This and all true future prediction and prophecy will come about. Now, in the Old and New Covenant, most prophecies concerning individuals and even nations were based on one keeping the conditions and the promises and God's word. So overall, he spoke to Israel and said, if I ever prophesy to do you good and speak to do you good and you turn to evil, I will repent of the promise of good and I will send you evil. See, he makes it plain to them. Yet end time events, what Christ is revealing, that is going to come to pass. He's showing us, he's not saying that these things can be altered. He's telling them that this is what's going to happen. Yet God's principle of prophecy with all nations and mainly Israel was what I just said. He said, at any time I pronounce good and you turn to evil, I will repent of the good. And then he said to the wicked, if I promise to destroy you, remember he did Nineveh. He said, if you turn from your evil to good, I will repent of the evil I intended you. Nineveh lasted another hundred years, but that generation was not destroyed. And they didn't even get a promise, but that was God's principle whether they understood it or not. That's why he sent the prophet. He usually doesn't send people if he's not going to extend mercy unless it's a final judgment that is irreversible, as he did with Israel and as he did with Saul and Pharaoh and others, he had tested them too many times and he had enough of it. And he just lets them know what he's going to do. So any prophecy today, anything a Christian thinks he has from the Lord is conditioned on him staying with the Lord. I've had many people counsel you, they're still waiting for God to do something that God years before decided it's canceled. That person didn't meet God's condition. And they're still claiming by faith. 
Well, God told me I'd go to the mission field. Did you go? No. Well, I think you better get back with God. Maybe he found someone else to do it after 20 years. See, people don't use common sense. Well, the Lord said that. Yes, but the Lord gives prophecy to individuals on conditions, their conditions. Regardless of the heretics and the once saved, always saved, you do not find any promise of everlasting, eternal life as being a permanent gift, irregardless of what the person does. We're going to find in the seven churches, he told each one, he that overcomes. That's why those teachers of that false doctrine, they don't like the book of Revelation. Because he speaks to every church and says, to him that overcomes. They don't get the promises until they endure to the end. There is no once saved, always saved. There is no permanent sealing. These are doctrines of demons. The scripture, God don't deal that way with humans. Okay. They have to follow him and they have to stay with him to the end. As Jesus said, and that supersedes all prophecy, he who endures to the end shall be saved. The person has to endure. It doesn't say God's irresistible grace will endure for them. That's heretical demonic teaching. Let's go ahead and close. The Lord give us the wisdom the practical wisdom and understanding of the whole of your scripture and help us to understand the prophecy that we are in. In Jesus' name, amen.